Amen. We're going to invite you to take your seats now. We're going to do things a little bit differently today than our usual schedule. We're actually going to do our storytelling time now because it's going to lead into a song that we will be learning together. Uh, Saito McKim is a member here. She was the speaker at the women's retreat this year. And uh, she introduced the song to us. It was kind of our theme song for the retreat. And she shared so much about her life and her story. And I really wanted her to come and share that with us today. So Saito, come on up and tell us your story. Thank you, Katie. Good morning. There has been so much to celebrate and be grateful for in my life. I've had a pretty amazing time on this earth so far. Sprinkled in with immense amounts of joy has also been some sufferings. On May 13th, my husband Jeremy and I dropped our 15-year-old son, Hunter, off at a therapeutic wilderness program in Utah. The sorrow ran deep. I could barely breathe. Nothing could prepare me to leave him there, not even having wrestled with tough moments, like the repelling accident he had two years ago and miraculously survived and healed from, or that six months after this trauma, my brother-in-law took his life, leaving behind my sister and five kids. Hunter went willingly and courageously to this program. These months would be a separation, but also a rekindling of relationships and healing from an inner turmoil and anxiety that has hurt him for many years resulting in much pain and unrest for him, but also for our family. Jeremy and I got to go visit Hunter a week and a half ago for 24 glorious hours in the mountains. He had a piece about him that we have rarely seen. He is growing tremendously, and we had the best conversations we have ever had. He is hopeful, and so are we. There's something about being brought to a place of surrender, to trust in the one who can help us to take necessary steps toward the life he's created for us, steps that I couldn't take in my own flesh. In a few weeks, we return to Utah to visit Hunter again, this time with our 16-year-old daughter, Bailey, and our 10-year-old son, Sam. We're looking forward to being together and to work on building a new foundation for our family. Last fall, I stepped away from my role on Young Life staff to spend more time with my family. I love my role in this mission, and I'm passionate, more passionate than ever about this mission to youth, but I realized that I couldn't do it all, and God was prompting me to pass on the baton. In the last year, we have walked with my father-in-law and my mom through stage four cancers. Today, I head to Idaho to be with my parents as my dad undergoes a risky vascular surgery tomorrow morning. I don't share these things to bring shock and awe or for pity but rather to explain that every day and every moment provides an opportunity to ask for God's help and to trust him, a recognition of God's saving promises. This doesn't always come easy. In fact, often God uses others to pray on our behalf and to remind us that we are not alone. A verse that has been on my mind a lot lately is John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Sometimes the weight of everything can feel heavy, almost suffocating. Maybe you can relate. I allow myself to grieve and reach out for Jesus and to those I know will pray for me. What I will not do, I will not give the enemy any place in my story to move in and steal, kill, or destroy anything. I need the armor of God, as it says in Ephesians 6, 
to guard my family and me in this battle. And I'm going to battle, if I'm going to battle for anything, it is to claim Jesus as Lord and Savior and that he has all authority. That when we share ourselves and our story with others, we share our humanness and our need for him. There will be joy and suffering until Jesus returns. But in the meantime, he came to give us life and life to the full, even in our pain. And I will grab hold of this with every bit of strength he gives me. I want to read uh, an excerpt from one of my favorite devotionals called The Blue Book. This is by Jim Branch. You let it happen, this riding over our heads, whoever or whatever that may have been. You didn't cause it, but you could have stopped it. I know it doesn't happen every day, but I have seen you spring into action and miraculously come to someone's aid or defense. I have seen you come to protect or deliver, and yet for some reason in this case, you didn't. You allowed it. Does that mean you sat idly by and watched, or does it mean that although the brokenness of this world was its cause, you are big enough to bring beauty out of tragedy? You saw it coming and let it stand because of what you knew it would do within us. You knew that the groaning it would produce would have an effect on us like nothing else could or would. So where exactly were you when we were going through the fire being consumed by the agonizing flames of grief or sadness or mourning or pain? What were you doing while the mighty waves of waters rushed over us and swept us away as we struggled and fought and sur to survive and keep our heads above water? Were you with us in some mysteriously hidden way that we were not able to co completely comprehend at the time? Were you in the midst of the fire with us, shielding us from the fury of flames? Were you in the middle of the raging currents beside us, holding and sustaining us, keeping us afloat? After all, you know what the groaning is like. In fact, you know it like no other. Did it break your heart to watch this writing over us unfold, to know the depths of the pain we were going through and not intervene? How hard that must have been for you. When we are in the midst of the groan, it is hellish. It is hard to believe or even consent to the fact that something good might possibly result from such chaos and brokenness, much less to think that it could be some strange path to a place called abundance. This is almost unthinkable, yet all of us on the backside of this riding over usually have to admit that something took place within us or among us that could have happened no other way. We would never have chosen the path in a million years, not then and most likely not again, but we can't deny the beauty of the new place where we eventually arrived. How in the world did we get there? Who would have imagined that the groans and cries and tears and struggle would have brought us to that place? That place where our hearts were both broken and expanded, where our souls were both crushed and deepened beyond measure. Who could have dreamt that the effect of the fire and the water would have been to make us more like Jesus? He who suffers with and delivers, he who weeps over and heals. There has been a lot of groaning going around lately. It seems to be coming from every direction. I guess it's true that each one of us sits beside a pool of tears. And it is so hard to watch the groaners groan and the mourners mourn and the strugglers struggle and not be able to do anything but pray. It is so tempting to try and come to the rescue, but rescue is not really possible or even preferable because something much deeper is going on. In the words of Gerald May, there is no way out, only through. Something deep and wonderful happens in the going through, so we must resist the urge to provide an escape, if that were even possible, because the struggle or the groaning or the grief or the pain is the very thing that is able to do a beautiful work within us.
all there is to do is trust. Trust that God really is in control. Trust that God really is up to something in spite of all appearances. Trust that God really is big enough to sustain, to comfort, to deliver, to heal, and ultimately to transform. Trust that through the fire and through the water lies a place of abundance. Thank you, Seidel, for sharing your story with us and that beautiful reading. Here this morning's scripture reading. Okay. Good morning. My name is Marcus. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Revelation. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 from the New International Version. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them in their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ben Steele. Today's going to look a little different uh, in that my wife, Pastor Elise, and I are going to be tag-teaming this message. So I'm going to be starting us off, and then uh, Elise will be bringing it home, so to speak. Um, the hope is that we can both play to our strengths in this message. And for me, that means unpacking some of the biblical context, the through lines in Scripture, and the historical relevancy. And for Elise, that means making personal connections between God's Word and your and my current life. As I like to think about it using a sports analogy, I'm like Gary Payton throwing up a lob pass for Sean Kemp, my wife, to slam down a mean two-hand jam. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I I've got nothing for you. Come on now. <laughs> Sonics, RIP. Um, you can Google it later. Uh, so as we look here at the end of the Bible and the end of the world, also known as the eschaton, that's the fancy Greek term for the last days, the last things. It can be tempting to look at a passage like this and simply think about how great it's going to be someday. A day off in the future, in fact the last day, where God will make all things new and good and right. And that for us, it means to sit and wait patiently until God comes again. Now, while that is true in part, it is not the whole. For we, are, for we must remember that John, the writer of Revelation, is writing for the people of God in a specific place and time. He's writing to churches and Christians who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire, who are feeling the oppression of a government trying to suppress the hope and message found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not some pie-in-the-sky text. 
John is writing this vision as a way to encourage the believers who are feeling the real challenge about whether to give that hope up in Christ or to continue to pursue, despite the fact of seeing their brothers and sisters being imprisoned, persecuted, and put to death. John himself is writing this from an island, essentially being uh, imprisoned there. So this is not a passive text. It's meant to do something for the people of that day. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, can do something for us and to us as well. So here we are at the end of the Bible, and what do we see? Well, we notice that John, actually in the first verse, describes that there is no more sea, S-E-A. Seems kind of strange. And that this holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, and as a bride and bridegroom come together, heaven and earth, they're united. John goes on to describe actually six other things that pass away for a total of seven. Seven current realities that God does away with as heaven and earth are united. As we've seen throughout Scripture, and particularly in Revelation, numbers matter. There's a reason that John describes these seven things. Seven being the number of completeness, seven days it took God to create the earth, and it is now these seven realities that plague us that will be no more in the world to come. These things include death, mourning, tears, pain, curses, nighttime, and the sea. Now, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things like, seems like it doesn't belong. Do you remember your old Sesame Street songs? What's the sea doing in there? I get not getting rid of death and pain and crying. The sea? Does that mean there's no snorkeling or scuba diving or surfing in heaven or in the, new, the world to come? Well, I don't think that's exactly what John had in mind. You see, in the ancient world, the sea was an image for chaos, for a powerful force beyond our control. If you've ever been on a, a lake or a, a body of water and been caught up in a storm, you know how powerless you can feel, how much you realize, I don't have things under control. That's certainly the way the ancient Jews would have seen things, particularly because they weren't seafaring people. So it's no accident that, say, in the Gospels, we see all four of our writers describe Jesus calm the storm on the water. They all have their different kind of take on it, but it's one of the few stories or sayings that are in all four of our Gospels. It was that important for the writers to all demonstrate Christ's authority over such a chaotic and powerful force. But to really understand this text, to see what God is getting rid of and what God is initiating and inaugurating here, we actually need to go back to the beginning of the story. We need to see how God initially started things out and to see what is he rectifying here in the last days. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn back, I'll be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 briefly. Otherwise, you can just follow along. Notice that in Genesis chapter 1, we have this rhythm. If you're familiar with the story, it's the creation of all things. God speaks and is brought into the existence. There was darkness, God speaks, and there is light. There was evening and morning on the first day, and it was good. God speaks, God creates. There was evening and there was morning. God said it was good. And this pattern repeats itself over and over again. 
The writer here in Genesis is a very orderly uh, writer, giving us an account of what takes place. And if you notice here, at the very beginning of the story, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, or empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You see, God in his creation takes this chaotic, formless void in the earth that is devoid of life, that is devoid of order, and begins to form and fashion it, putting order and boundaries and markers and differentiation between these different realities. He does so between day and night, between the sky and the sea, between land and the waters, and so on. Eventually, the sun and the moon, and then even man and woman. But if you missed it, at the very beginning, the very first pairing we see is in heaven and the earth. You see, God's intention was never for earth to kind of dissolve away and for us to fly away to heaven as our ultimate reality. Heaven and earth are two parts of the same reality. That's always been the story from the very beginning till the very end. That's what the Bible tells us. And we see this pairing throughout Scripture. We see husbands and wives, God in Israel, Christ in the church, and heaven and earth. And in fact, when you dig a little deeper, you see that our marriages are signposts and images for what will eventually take place between Christ and his church. The New Testament talks about the church being a bridegroom for Christ many times. That's the point of marriage. So what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is this orderly, neat creation. And for everything God has made, he has made it good. As we move into Genesis chapter 2, the account of Eden, this garden of delight, we see that God speaking about Adam, the man of dirt. That's actually what the Hebrew mean, name Adam means, just a man of dirt. Maybe think of like Claude or something, I don't know. Um, Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Some translations might have tend it or guard it, things like that. It's this Hebrew word that has this notion of protection and care. It's the same word that's actually used later when God gives instructions to the Israelites about Torah, about the God's law. You are to care for it, to protect it. There's even a sense of reverence there. So what exactly is God intending for Adam and eventually his wife Eve to do in the garden? What's that work entail? Does this mean we should all be farmers and gardeners? Is that what we should be doing with our days? What do you think God hoped Adam and Eve would do in the Garden of Eden? Well, in these opening chapters, we see a God who's giving life in abundance. His His goodness overflows and pours into creation. And he commands us to be fruitful, to multiply, to expand, to have dominion over it. For Adam and Eve, it means that God in the garden is giving them the freedom and the responsibility to do something with that garden. Adam and Eve are not simply to be curators of a museum, trying to keep things exactly pristine in the way God initially made it. I believe that God is asking Adam and Eve to add to it, to develop it, to continue forming the garden. 
But why? Because our work matters. Because God honors the work and creativity that we display in our life. Whatever the garden was in the beginning, I don't believe that's the way God intended it to always be. If God had planted 10 banana trees in the Garden of Eden. I, I don't think his intent was for there to only ever be 10 banana trees in the garden. People would probably go hungry. Whatever the garden was in the beginning, I don't think that's the way it was supposed to stay. I think God put them in the garden to work it, to explore it, to experiment, to create, to do meaningful, formative, lasting work. See how this is affirmed back when we go to Revelation 21. We see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven, being wedded to the earth. Later on in that same chapter, the city is described as being made of all kinds of different precious materials and jewels and stones. Now, if you're a close reader of the text, you'll notice that many of those same precious materials are found back in the Garden of Eden. No coincidence there that there's a connection between the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and the way things end at the book and the end of the book of Revelation. There are rivers flowing throughout Eden. In, Genesis, in Revelation 22, we see a river of life flowing through the center of this holy city. So what does it mean that we start in a garden and we end in this garden city, if you will? It's no longer just a garden. It's not just a city. It's kind of a marriage between the two, a garden city. Well, if the garden represents natural beauty and resources and life-giving sources for us, then the city represents the culmination of the best aspects of human creativity and culture. Think about the best aspects of a city. And what do you find? Art, beauty, architecture music, good food, right? All of these things that are crafted and developed by human culture through creativity. You see, in the end, God does not dismiss or erase the work that we do or are involved in here and now, but God honors that work that we do. He integrates it into his final plan. God offers us a partnership in the world, giving dominion and rule over in accordance with his desire and will. You see, later on in chapter 21, in verse 24, in fact, it says, the nations will walk by its light. That's the sun given off. That's the radiance and the light given off by the sun, Jesus Christ, by the way. But if God were to do away with human creativity and culture, then it would make no sense for the nations to walk by the light. The nations are are a product of human culture. If they were dissolved or erased, there would no longer be nations. Elsewhere in Revelation, it talks about tongues and tribes worshiping together. God doesn't dissolve those or uniform them into one. We remain who we are. And so God does not destroy or erase this human creativity, but he honors it and works with it and us. So John here is reminding his readers that despite the fact that the Roman Empire's attempt to control and marginalize and persecute the church. As Christians, we have work to do. And this work matters. This work will last. This text is a great measuring stick 
for us to continue to evaluate ourselves and the work that we're currently involved in. Is the kind of work that I'm doing, that you are doing, is this the kind of work that's moving towards this garden city? This new Jerusalem? Is it bringing about order and creativity and beauty and goodness? Am I being a partner with God, working towards this end goal, this trajectory that we see all of human history working towards? Reflecting on this call in scripture to be the co-workers with Christ in God's service, who comes to mind for you? Throughout your life and history, who are the laborers in the field revealing to you the kingdom of God? When I was in eighth grade, we had to write research biographies of people of influence. I chose Mother Teresa because my mother's name is Teresa. As you can tell, I put a lot of thought into my decision. Yet researching her life drastically impacted my own. I was not a Christian at the time, and I could not believe how this woman gave up her entire life to help those in need. I remember reading a story about how someone once gave Mother Teresa a limousine, and she ended up selling it and giving all the money to the poor. I can't remember whose brilliant idea it was to give a limo to Mother Teresa, a woman who had taken a vow of poverty. But to an eighth grader, this was the most selfless act anyone could ever do. I would have totally kept that limousine. I was so taken by her life that I quoted, I quoted my, to my friends daily about little nuggets about who Mother Teresa was. So much so that when she died about six months after I finished my research project, my friend called me on the phone to make sure I was doing okay. I was not. I was rather distraught. I told my mom, there is literally no one good left in the world. <laughs> to which you would have think she might take a little bit of offense. But instead she said, instead of thinking no one good is left, why don't you take up her mantle and try to do good yourself, Elise? It didn't take me long when motivated by my own desire to do good and only having my present reality to keep me going. Doing good work felt impossible. It seemed no matter how nice I was to the bully, how much trash I picked up on the sidewalk, or how many times I tried to unload the dishwasher without being asked, nothing seemed to be getting better. Mean kids still existed in school. People continued to litter. And I couldn't seem to remember to unload the dishwasher without being told six or seven times. To do this work, the work of tending to the garden, it isn't an effort we just take on. We have to be equipped by the Holy Spirit. And even then, at times, it can feel like an uphill battle. So what is it that keeps us going? What helps us see beyond our own realities? It is this vision that John has gifted to us and to those first century followers, those who experienced persecution, witnessed firsthand the murder of Christ, and felt overwhelmed by their current situation in life. 
It is easy to entrench ourselves in the darkness, to feel defeated before we even begin. When death, mourning, tears, pain, curses, chaos, and nighttime still exist, we can throw up our hands and surrender. But this is not what God has called us to. No, our word reminds us that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Our story does not end with death, but it ends with resurrection and redemption. We serve a God of good who has embodied that quality within each of us. Within our lives, the spirit can be at work, bringing life and beauty in big and small ways. I once watched a documentary of the reformer Martin Luther, and one of the most powerful lines of my life has come from it. Luther was speaking with his mentor, and his mentor said to him, I have lived in a world that has hated evil more than it has loved good. Is this true for you? Do you find your story to be living into what is wrong about your life? rather than what is beautiful. When my brother died, I felt all goodness left the earth. His death seemed to impact every good thing that I once loved. I felt that awful sting of death the moment I woke up in the morning and each night as I lay down. The process of breathing felt labored and life constantly felt heavy. God did not seem good. I remember telling a friend, I hate that this is my story. I hate being known as the girl whose brother died. The first December after Casey's death, I remember that second Sunday in Advent. We were singing a hymn, and one of the refrains went, Rejoicing in God's goodness, my spirit is restored. What washed over me was Casey's death was not my story. My story was bigger. My pain did not define my life, but it was God's goodness. For before me, there was a new heaven and a new earth. God's dwelling place was to be amongst us. And there would be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. This ash that I held within my hands from the brokenness of this life, God promised to bring beauty. The book of Ephesians tells us we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Each of us has the potential to do the kind of work that moves us towards that garden city, to that new Jerusalem. Mother Teresa's life showcased for me, a non-believer at the time, a glimpse of what that future kingdom would look like. People living out their life, not for their own personal gain or their agenda, but seeking peace and love and goodness for all. The other day I was at the park with a friend of mine she was over helping her child play on the playground, and she struck up a conversation with a fellow mom. It just so happened that this woman was new to the island, 
a recent transplant from New Jersey, and it had been here a mere 48 hours. She had two children with her, and now all of her family and friends were across the country. This friend took the time to hear of this woman's transition to the island, and even though she had to leave, made a point to get her number so that she would have one point of connection in this new place that she lived. This small act is what I believe it looks like to tend to the garden. It is when we step out of our own story and live into the bigger story, the one where we love our neighbors as ourselves, where we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, we value others above ourselves. It is truly when we give over our time and abilities to God, when we cling to that promise of the new Jerusalem, it is then that we see the kingdom of God in the here and now. We offer to future generations hope that even though they face giants like climate change, increasing issues of homelessness, drug abuse, violence, that the flourishing of life and beauty is still happening, that we have this common story, Christ's life, death, and resurrection is for all of us. There is more than meets the eye. The beauty that we create in this life will not be overlooked or forgotten, but the God of great creativity takes it and weaves it into the peaceable kingdom that will last forever. For now we see only a reflection in the mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know fully. The author of life created you to do good works. May you connect to a story that is bigger than yourself and your current situation and join God in the story of restoration and love. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have created all things and deemed them good. We pray that you would enliven us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be bold to go into a world that feels broken and dark, that we can also oftentimes be entrenched by our own sadness and sorrow, by the sins of this world. But we pray that you would give us a spirit not of timidity, but of courage, that we would go into this place with a vision of the new Jerusalem, where the heavens and the earth meet one another, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where peace will rule and love as well. We pray, almighty God, that we can be ambassadors of that truth to this world. Help us live into that story this day and every day henceforth, that we would know we are created by you, a holy God, who deeply loves us empowered by your Holy Spirit to do the good works of your kingdom. Be with us now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.